to you here in a sec. Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Special program today. Rather than listening to me talk, today we're going to talk to Daniel Bruner, who is co-founder and president of Bruner Sierra Group. He'll tell you more about that in a second. Lives in the beautiful town of Bozeman, Montana now. Um, we'll get into his background, but just so you know in advance, uh, U.S. Navy member, instructor at the U.S. Naval Academy, 20-year FBI agent, and was a founder of Joint Task Force Vulcan, which relates to MS-13 that we will talk about in detail in a minute. And with that, hi, Dan. Jack, how are you today? Great. How are you? How was that introduction? It was wonderful. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Just want to make sure it was right. Yeah. Um, do want to mention one thing right off the bat. Um, when we start talking about um, the Joint Task Force Vulcan and talk about MS-13, I know there are certain cases that are still going on, which will prohibit you from being specific about things, but we can still talk in generalities and, and things. Is that right? Is that fair? Yeah, that's yeah. fair. There's a, obviously a lot of uh, work that's still being conducted by the FBI and uh, members of Joint Test Force Vulcan, which uh, preclude me, obviously, because of confidentiality and classification, and it's an ongoing investigation. Uh, have to be wary of what's going on. And by the way, I should note, you're, you may see Dan occasionally on um, CNN, amongst other places, but I see him mostly on CNN. So um, just so people have kind of a general idea, if you want to give your background or any more detail to your background than I did, um, you know, and kind of how you ended up at the FBI. Sure. Appreciate it. So I is a it's a long story, but it's an interesting one. I started, uh, my parents are uh, immigrants to this country. They came from Chile and Argentina. And I was born and raised in upstate New York, speaking Spanish as my first language. And then we moved to Connecticut uh, when I was younger. And then uh, at which point we, you know, I went through my education. I went to Syracuse for uh, two years, at which point uh, university and college wasn't wasn't the right fit for me. I joined the Navy and enlisted in 1994, at which point I was stationed on the USS Stark and as an operations specialist. So the uh, the viewers can imagine in the movies that radar scope in the dark room and everybody's sitting in front of it. So that's what I did. I did that for five years. I uh, made some really close, good friends of mine who I'm still friends with to these days as an operations specialist. After five years at sea, I, uh, I did four deployments overseas to Europe, South America, and the Middle East. I was off the coast of Iraq for a number of months uh, in the mid-90s, so this was pre-9-11, after which I was stationed at the U.S. Naval Academy for, uh, for three years as an instructor, and we would provide uh, instruction and guidance to the, to the plebes and to the students there at the Naval Academy, which was a wonderful duty, at which point I finished my college education, finished my degree, and then 9-11 occurred. And about a, a year after that, the FBI was recruiting. And I believed at that point as, a, as an enlisted man, I 
thought I was thinking about reenlisting and staying in the Navy for another another 10 years, retire out, but I had my bachelor's degree. The FBI came to recruiting at the Naval Academy and I was in a room, I was the one enlisted man in a room full of officers and we had lieutenants, lieutenant commanders and commanders. And I didn't think I had a chance in, in a room like this. I was like, well, the FBI, that's, that's the premier law enforcement in the world. They're not going to want a guy who left college after two years and you know struggled as an enlisted man. They're going to want officers and Navy SEALs and accountants and lawyers. But at what cert, uh, certain point during the, during the presentation, the FBI recruiter said that they're looking for people who can speak multiple languages to include Spanish, which surprised me. It really surprised me that knowing the population of this country back even in the in the early 2000s, I thought that there would be plenty of agents who spoke Spanish. But I said, okay, I raised my hand. I figured at some point along the way, eventually the the you know the ball would drop or the shoot the other shoe would drop, and they'd say, oh, okay, they'd say, no, no, you're you're just an enlisted guy. But lo and behold, uh, I took the phase one exam for the FBI on September 11th, 2002. And then I reported to Quantico on September 7th, 2003, uh, which began my training. Received uh, 17 weeks at FBI Academy in Quantico. And then I was my first duty station was Newark, New Jersey, at which point I went to Newark, New Jersey. And then I spent 20 years there at Newark, New Jersey and never left. It was a, uh, it was a wonderful office. It is a lot of work. Uh, it is great work. Um, you learn everything, and there's a, a great, great environment there with people. Uh, the work is is very, definitely difficult. It's northern New Jersey, so it's people who are not from the Northeast. Imagine being extremely condensed with millions of people all around you, everybody living on top of one another. It really is that bad. Um, but with that comes lots of culture, lots of different personalities, lots of backgrounds, a lot of uh, a lot of different great foods. So uh, during my, uh, as soon as I was stationed there in Newark, I spent four years in international terrorism. And then I transferred over to four years in the domestic terrorism branch investigating white supremacy. And there's in New Jersey, it is one of the worst in the country for white supremacists. Shockingly, it is because there are skinheads and white nationalists and Ku Klux Klan. Uh, so from there, I had some great cases, and at which point uh, I was offered an opportunity to transfer over to the criminal branch, at which point I moved over and I took possession of a the MS-13 caseload because of my fluency in Spanish, and I never left. 12 years working MS-13, it was some of the best cases that I've ever worked. I worked with some of the best agents from in the FBI and around the U.S. Attorney's Office and and the District of New Jersey, the Homeland Security, ATF, some great, great agents in New Jersey and around the world. So I had some great cases. Uh, I worked that locally in New Jersey, number of uh, racketeering cases, major racketeering cases that I investigated and took to trial, two major RICO cases, at which point I I was offered an opportunity to be part of the startup of this new joint task force Vulcan, which was uh, started up by AG Barr and back in uh, late 2019. And he wanted, his target was to go after, so in, in the FBI, 
we every division, there's 56 divisions across the country. And every division is responsible for their area of responsibility, their AOR. So New Jersey, FBI Newark is responsible for all, mo- excuse me, most of the counties in New Jersey. Philadelphia has a few counties down in South Jersey. But FBI Newark, and then you have Washington Field Office, you have New York, New Haven. Everybody's responsible for their backyard. So the cases that fall in Newark fall to the Newark agents. Well, as part of Joint Task Force Vulcan, AG Barr, uh, the Department of Justice, they wanted to go after the senior members of MS-13, the leaders, all the leaders that are in El Salvador and all the leaders that were in Mexico at the time. Uh, so we went after this. Uh, they, they tasked us. It was one of three agents uh, selected in the country. The other two agents, really good friends of mine. They're still active agents. And uh, Homeland Security was brought in, HSI, ATF, DEA, uh, Bureau of Prisons. It really was a very, very good multi-agency uh, task force led by the Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney's Office. And we went after the senior leaders of MS-13 uh, from El Salvador all the way up to Mexico. And it was a, it's a great, great unit. And that's where I ended my career and uh, recently retired, decided to hang it up after 29 years. It was time. And I moved out of New Jersey and came up here to Montana and haven't looked back. Started a uh, started the company with my wife. We do forensic accounting and for high net value families and uh, family offices. So we do forensic accounting and investigations. Um, the which is, you know, really tremendous because my wife has just got so much experience from working in Manhattan in New York City with family offices. So it's really been a great experience and, you know, it's really fascinating to be able to talk about the FBI and with people like yourself and on CNN and represent the FBI and say, listen, because as an FBI agent, you're obviously there's lots of restrictions that they don't want you talking to the press. They don't want you talking um, without you know, clear it. But obviously I can, uh, as a civilian now, I can speak because it's a, a wonderful experience, a wonderful agency. And, you know, working those 20 years, especially in the MS-13 world and chasing the uh, MS-13 members who are in Mexico, they still are, has been, uh, it was a great experience. So now I'm here enjoying the, the next chapter of my life with, uh, with my family here in Montana. It's awesome. Um, and and if I'm not mistaken, you just got licensed as a private investigator in Montana. Did I see Correct. that? Correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I just I just got my license. Uh, I don't intend to do PI work. That's traditionally what everybody thinks is a private investigator. Oh, I need you to follow such and such a person and do surveillance. That's not it. So I I obtained my PI license to be able to serve legal paperwork in support of my wife, who is the forensic accountant CPA for the firm. So we are a husband-wife uh, firm. It's just the two of us here, LLC here in Montana. So from time to time, there may be times where she needs uh, legal paperwork served upon somebody if we're conducting an investigation. So as a private investigator, it just affords me the 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 ability to do that. And obviously, it adds a little bit more credibility to this new firm that is up and coming. So, but I don't intend to do any of that traditional okay. private investigator work. <laughs> okay. um, so I want to talk about MS-13 with you, but before we get too far, 
Um, just in case people aren't familiar with who or what MS-13 is, can you give the the short version of who they are and then we can talk about them in more detail? Sure. MS-13 is the – it is a – MS Mata Salvatrucha, which is uh, an El Salvadorian gang, which originated in Los Angeles in California in the mid-80s. A lot of El Salvadorians came up to the United States during the Civil War, which was occurring back then. They came up here and – you know, some of them were arrested and committing crimes, and they were sent to jail. While in jail, they just they needed protection, so they were they formed together. And while in jail, they decided to agree to the Mexican mafia agreeing, you know, providing protection. That is the thirteen, which is the thirteenth letter of the alphabet. So they that's how they became MS thirteen. Then Reagan decided to President Reagan deported all of those. Uh, inmates at the California jail system deported them back to El Salvador at which point they because they didn't go into El Salvadorian jails it thrived it really just blew up and blossomed their 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 ability to recruit more and they sent a lot of those inmates or excuse me they sent a lot of these new recruits up to the United States and which point they blossom in in Hispanic communities, El Salvadorian communities. So in the 80s and 90s, they were it was much smaller, but and they've just completely uh, doubled and tripled in size. The number of people, uh, number of uh, MS-13 members in the United States and around the world. So they're pretty much in most countries around the world. There's an MS-13 presence. Um, it, it will be shocking to to see the number of countries that I I know that they are in. So it's a uh, significantly, you know, traditionally was what people know them as is, oh, they're hacking up people and they're chopping up people. Well, they've seemed to have slowed down. They've gotten smarter. They've turned more into an organized crime uh, syndicate organization. So they're doing a lot smarter things. They're not getting tattoos. They're not running around with the colors. They're working with the cartels, the Mexican cartels in Mexico. That's all these things are known. Uh, so it's uh, it's a it was a violent violent gang that has seems to have slowed down and is a lot more organized now. Which, in some respects, I suppose mimics a little bit of what we see with um, Mexican cartels, which you know we talk about on this program a lot. In the fact that you know, you you could look at at several of the bigger cartels that started off as just drug dealers and now they've got their hands in lots of things, including, you know, legitimate businesses um, or, or at least legitimate industries, you know, fishing and transportation and things of that nature. Um, one of the things I'm curious about, so I'm working, I, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the program. I'm working on a, a an effort to kind of compile a, a history of Mexican cartels. And one of the first things I started with was the idea of what's a cartel, you know, and we call, and, um, and, and trying to put some parameters around that. And so one of the words that kind of gets commonly used when you talk about MS 13 and some others is the idea of a gang, um, you know, and, and using the air quotes there, but then you talked about it in as more of a criminal organization, and I'm wondering if you can, if, if if what I'm asking makes any sense to you. But kind of, you know, how does a 
how do a group of people evolve from from being in a gang or being a you know being a group of people that are then a gang that then become a a real criminal organization? Well, it, I think the here the thing is about MS thirteen is that they've really grown and learned from no better word their mistakes of of when the FBI and HSI when we conduct our operations they're learning from okay what got them caught because we'll take them to trial they'll find out these signals they and then they're learning from that so they're learning you know if you google search ms13 what are the first thing that comes up is photographs of ms13s with tattoo or ms13 members with tattoos across their forehead tattoos on their arms well those days you know those are members from from the past the 80s the 90s where they were blatantly obviously displaying their colors now they're learning from the times where there were their mistakes is they're learning hey it's we we can't be doing that because that's going to get us caught and, it, and you know the amount of work that we need to put into getting a new member trained up and brought into the community is not worth the pain of a member getting a tattoo so it's a lot better for business if he doesn't have a tattoo, it's a lot better for business if he's not flashing the blue and white colors. It's a lot better for business if they're not on the streets throwing up the gang signs, which everybody traditionally knows them as. So it's becoming more of an organization where the leaders are coming down saying, okay, we don't need you to do that. At the same time, MS-13 is extremely hierarchical where they the the leaders want you know, a, a command and control. So there's nothing that happens on the streets in the towns of the United States without the without the, the without the approval of senior leadership in El Salvador. So if they want to commit a homicide, if they want to conduct narcotics activity, if they want to do anything illegal that advances the organization, they have to seek approval. Now that goes to where it's a lot easier for us to do a racketeering investigation, uh, which is a very complex. A RICO investigation was originated by in the 70s by the Department of Justice to combat uh, the organized crime, the Italian, uh, Italian organized crime, the mob. Well, the Department of Justice has been going about utilizing that same tool to go after organizations such as MS-13. So if they can, if we're as an investigator, if I can show two acts which were utilized by the member to advance himself or the organization, and I'm able to show A, association affiliation um, to the organization, and B, that that act was used to advance himself or the organization, those are two predicated acts which I can show to the, to the courts, and that's a charge for a RICO. So, for example, if an MS-13 member decides to kill somebody, and that was because of retaliation for drug trafficking or something along those lines. And that that would I can show, hey, listen, he killed that guy because they're trying to set up their drug trafficking neighborhood. Okay, that's a predicated act. That's murder in the aid of racketeering. Murder itself is not a federal crime. That's a state or local. A murder in the aid of racketeering, that's different. that is murder, so that's a federal charge. So then I have to show a second predicated act where it could be as simple as he was part of the drug trafficking for that for MS-13 
or he was part of the conspiracy to commit that murder. He, they planned it. They, so I put those two charges together, working with the uh, with the Department of Justice. That there lies one, you know, the racketeering act, and that. So I sent a number of MS-13 members away for the rest of their life because the mandatory sentence for murder in the aid of racketeering, if I'm able to prove it in court and he's convicted in front of the jury, murder in the aid of racketeering is a mandatory sentence of life in jail without the possibility of parole. And I've sent, uh, I don't know exactly how many I've sent away for the for, for mandatory life. So it, it's a it's a good uh, it's a good tool. Department of Justice utilizes it. I have great U.S. Attorney's Office um, and um, the offices of um, uh, crime and uh, the uh, the gang unit down in, in Department of Justice. So they they have a lot of great U.S. attorneys that I work with. Um, so the, the MS-13 really utilizes their terror, their communication, their organization as part of their you know what they're enforcing so utilizing all these things that um come to our disposal is is to attack the organization that makes sense and you know, I just was thinking Rico's how Rudy Giuliani initially exactly. rose to fame going against the mob with with Rico when it first came out right yeah um it, so Looking at at kind of similar organizations, criminal organizations in the United States, in addition to what you've talked about, are the things that make uh, MS-13 unique or uniquely successful or just, you know, we we hear so much about them. And and again, some of it, we've talked about it offline. You know, even today you get the reports and you get more of the, the, the if it bleeds it leads in newspapers as opposed to anything really substantive um but just wondering if um you know if there's something about them that that gives them um you know, the ability to survive and and thrive longer than some others and to be more prominent than some other kind of similar organizations well there's a lot of great organizations excuse me let me stand corrected there's not they're not great organizations so there's a lot of other gangs and criminal organizations that are out there in in every single community. Every single community you can think of. MS-13 is part of the El Salvadorian community, uh, and I think one of the abilities, of the reasons why they thrive so well, is because is their connection to home, connection to El Salvador. So a lot of the immigrants that are here in the United States. Uh, they're working. They're they're hardworking individuals. They they work great at restaurants and manual labor, but the problem is that they've come here to make a better life for their families that are back home. That gives the opportunity for these MS13 members here to target that, and so they'll target restaurants and say, and and extortion is is really one of the big breadwinners for MS-13. They're not looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars. They're looking at small amounts, but they'll ask a restaurant, say, hey, give us $100 a month. And for and it's, this is a local restaurant in town, in New Jersey, and wherever, or in Columbus, Ohio, Los Angeles. And they'll say, you know, give us $100 a month. And if they don't, not only do they fall, you know, they, they, they have the possibility of them, they're getting threatened and their restaurant being damaged there, 
But the threat that they tell them is, listen, if you don't do it, we're going to have our people go after you back in El Salvador, your family. So there's a lot of motivation. And especially with the Hispanic community, there's, you know, they're better off just saying, okay, you know what, I'll just pay the $100 a month instead of actually going to law enforcement and working with law enforcement because of A, whether it be immigration issues or B, because of the fear that they'll actually do something to their their cousins, their aunts, their mother, their father uh, back in El Salvador. So they will pay the $100 and they'll pay the extortion fees locally here. So there's a lot of other organizations and that I've investigated over my years that are bigger. They have obviously more product. You have the cartels, which you know are tremendous. They have armies and the amount of money that is at their disposal, you know, eclipses MS-13, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, to an nth degree. But the MS-13 presence and the MS-13 lore and the the ability of putting fear just because you walk into an El Salvadorian community and you say MS-13, people immediately fear them. And they're just based on the name because of what they, their propensity to violence, the propensity to conduct awful, horrible violence. They'll, you know, without getting very graphic, they're, you know, the, the, the weapons that they use, everybody knows them as, as machete wielding. It is, is as bad as it sounds and as bad as, as the, you know, the media, like you were saying, it bleeds, it leads. And that's why you had, for example, in Long Island, a number of years ago, quadruple homicide, where four individuals, three of them, which were completely innocent, had nothing to do with this. They were targeting the one person and the three other people were butchered by MS-13. And they leave the bodies there as a symbol. They'll leave as, you know, sometimes they'll bury the body to make it disappear. Sometimes they will put it on full display for everybody to know, hey, this is MS-13. We did this so that whatever there's um, repercussions afterwards, the, the neighborhood will be like, okay, maybe I won't talk to law enforcement. So fear is fear goes a long way for MS-13 and they, they know that. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, so tell me about um, the task force Vulcan and kind of how that came about and how it helped. I, I mean, I know you've touched on it, but I'm really curious as to kind of how that process worked and, and how it helped in um, being able to put more cases together against MS-13. Well, what it did was, and that's a great question because the, the, the amount of work that every agency put that has, that joined, Joint Task Force Falcon since 2019. I know the amount of work and it's, the interagency cooperation is has been fantastic. It has been absolutely uh, some of the best AUSAs around the country were selected. I know AUSAs from Texas and North Carolina and New Jersey and Los Angeles and New York, and they're all just from around the country because we have this ability to communicate online, exchange files online. So. And all our investigations are putting information together. We're not doing the traditional, hey, let's go do a drug buy, let's go do surveillance, because we're putting information together based on statements from witnesses. So we're going and talking to so one, uh, two of the other agents that I that were we were selected to work with, um, you know, the three of us. You know, the other two are tremendously good at talking to people and getting them to 
you know, provide information, turning them uh, into um, individuals who will be willing to talk to the government. So you may, these two are very, and you know, all of us are fully fluent in Spanish. And, you know, my, I was brought on board because I was very, very good at chasing people and putting together an investigation. So we all were brought on board. Uh, Homeland Security. I worked with some great guys over at HSI. Uh, some of them, they're still there in, in New Jersey. And a lot of these individuals who some have moved on from Vulcan, such as myself, have retired and, or moved on to promotions. Uh, but HSI is tremendous because they bring you know the another angle, another ability to bring uh, assistant paperwork or an assistant in investigation because HSI has a number of offices around the country just like the FBI, and they're doing F investigations just like the FBI. So it offered us the ability to, you know, when I would work with my HSI counterpart, I'd talk to him and ask him and say, hey, you know, where, you know, do you guys have an investigation in Las Vegas on such and such a person? And whereas before it would be a little bit difficult where when I wasn't on Vulcan, if I had to find out that there was an investigation going on in Los Angeles with Los Angeles HSI, I'd have to call the FBI in Las Vegas. And FBI Las Vegas would then call Las Vegas HSI. This just having Vulcan, now I just turn to my HSI counterpart and say, hey, is there an investigation in, in on this MS-13 member in Las Vegas? And it would open, it'd be a, the doors would be opened a lot easier. There would be a lot better communication, a lot better uh, coordination between agencies. And the interagency cooperation and getting things to move uh, was a lot uh, easier, a lot easier and a lot more cooperation working with ATF and DEA. Uh, so the Joint Task Force Vulcan brought together, like I said, some of the best AUSAs who have worked MS-13. They know what it means to bring together a racketeering investigation. The AUSAs I work with at uh, District of New Jersey, I not only... I still consider them some of my, you know, best friends. So that's how close we've gotten. I spent years sitting in rooms with them, preparing, preparing evidence, and you know, working on witnesses, prepping witnesses for trials. And then, you know, I would work. I'd be, you know, I was very, uh, I was a very good agent. I was very uh, proactive. So I would be, I'd be looking at new possibilities, new ways to uh, conduct an investigation, different types of. Uh, technology that we could utilize. And I would always, you know, working it with my AUSA right next to me so that I would know that, you know, at worst case scenario, we're prepared for trial so that all my paperwork be, would be in line. So having Project uh, Task Force Vulcan, uh, which is, you know, run through the FBI headquarters as uh, the quote unquote base of operations. We would utilize this and we'd communicate on a weekly basis, everybody exchanging information. And, you know, we had different sets, different uh, areas of investigation. My area of investigation was Mexico and finding because a lot of in uh, a lot of MS-13 in 2015 started relocating a lot of their mid-level leaders to Mexico instead of sending them to the United States. Or having them stay in uh, El Salvador, they moved them to Mexico, at which point they were able to create a relationship with cartels who are obviously embedded there, and they were not going to let anybody else run their operations. 
or operate in their AOR. So a lot of, you know, a lot of information, which is public information, is that there is the Mexico program and of MS-13, that they're set up, they facilitate the human smuggling network they, on the trains, they facilitate weapons moving up and down, drugs moving up and down uh, into Central America and some of it into the United States. And uh, they're working with the cartels on this. Uh, so that's whereas, you know, we obviously have to be very cautious, but Joint Task Force Vulcan was put together to go after the bigger fish, the bigger fish. So there are uh, a number of arrests which uh, Task Force Vulcan uh, was uh, was the lead agency or lead task force on. And we've been able to get a lot of um, a lot of individuals here. Uh, that were MS-13 leaders in Mexico, and they're here in the United States now in custody. And uh, obviously, they're facing the normal criminal justice system. They have little attorneys in here, and they have the right to a trial. They will face justice here in the United States now for uh, some of their charges. So I've got a, <laughs> a whole <laughs> list of questions in my head. Um one of the one of the things, though, just on on what you said last, um, to what extent do uh, MS thirteen members flip on on others? Um, you know, because we look again. You know, this this podcast is is a lot about cartels, and one of the things we've talked about a lot is um, how a lot of the bigger names, whether in jail or in other places who could say a whole lot kind of take their secrets to the grave. And there's, you know, there's low level flipping and stuff. And there's been some against El Chapo, but maybe not as much as people would otherwise think. Um, And I'm wondering, given that whole connection back to El Salvador and, and stuff, you know, how, how pliable are they? you know, to, to, to talk. So it, listen, it's, you always, a lot of people who are crime fans and understand that, um, the, you know, Sammy, the bull Gravano was one of the senior members of, you know, La Cosa Nostra and he turned on John Gotti. So he was his, you know, Sammy, the bull was one of the, you know, senior most member, his Lieutenant, his right hand man. And he turned on so is the possibility of, of of senior leaders in MS-13 turning on one another? Yes, of course, there's always the possibility. Um, I have, you know, speaking from my experience, I've had uh, numerous members of MS-13 who have cooperated and have testified in court, and um, they pled guilty to charges. And in uh, exchange for that cooperation, they received what's called a 5K letter, so which is displaying it, and then the judge sentences, uh, sentences them based on the plea agreement and based on uh, their level of cooperation. So incentivizes, uh, obviously, those who are being arrested by the United States, by Department of Justice, incentivizes them to say, okay, I'm looking at, if I go to trial, I'm looking at 40, 50 years, possibly life and sentence. Or I could take a plea agreement with the United States and, you know, my plea agreement will say 20 years, but with a letter, I might get less than that. So and it's all up to the judge. It's all up to the judge ultimately. 
the so it has it has happened for me. I've been able to flip them. Um for the most part, I'd say a lot of them that are flipping is because, you know, the outstanding work by the US attorneys and presenting the case to their defense attorneys, to the defense attorneys of the of the uh of those that are being arrested. And you know, the it's it really is a team effort because without the evidence that which I collected and gave it to the U.S. attorneys, then they present it to the uh, the U.S. attorney's office. Will then present it to the defense team, and the defense team will be like, "Listen, you're you're kind of up against you know against a brick wall here. It would be a lot easier if you take a plea, and that's their decision. You know, I've uh, as far as the mid level management, you know, the MS thirteen. I'm not going to comment on you know who has obviously who who hasn't flipped, but I'm just saying is is it is always the possibility. It's always um, our our goal is ultimately is if we take these guys out, our number one goal is to get them to talk and then cooperate with us. If we can get them to cooperate and they can tell us, you know, even if they don't cooperate and say testify, at least they cooperate and sit down and talk to us and say, all right, this is everything. It's a, it's a Intel win. We don't want to arrest them. We don't want to send them to jail for the rest of their life without but our goal is to get them in custody to you know to face the crimes which they've been uh, charged with and get them to talk about the rest of the gang and find out from the inside you know talk to n- number wherever he is on the on the ranking list and saying hey what about the other guys above you what do you know about them what about these guys and then possibly yeah we'd love to have them testify against those people in in future trials which would then afford them less time on their sentence but it's always a goal of an investigator and a FBI agent to to try and flip as many people as possible. I, I can tell you from when I was the defense attorney, I've had those conversations. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> and I will say, I, I wrote this in in um, in a book, but um, I did love getting files from the FBI. Generally speaking, because at least every, I mean, everything was there as well organized. You usually could could right. figure out, you know, if there was. One of my favorite. One of my favorite. Sorry, also, interrupt, but one of my favorite AUSAs. Oh, uh, he's yep. in uh, California now. He's uh, no longer in New Jersey, but he's in Los Angeles. Uh, one of my. He's really, like I said, one of my really good friends still to this day. His show and tells were some of the the best show and tells that I've, and we still talk about him to this day. That he would be so energetic and have such great statements that. Listen, one half of it is the, you know, for, for those who don't understand show and tell is it is a, a possibility to present some of the evidence to the individual being charged with their defense attorney in the room. This is, you know, typically a couple of weeks after, after he's been arrested, it's for our, it's for the U S attorney's office to say, Hey, listen, this is what we've got on you. Instead of just the defense attorney going, this is the list of things. So the AUSAs will do a show and tell and they'll present uh, some of the evidence and saying, listen, we've got you. This is your opportunity to take a deal. But this AUSA, uh, he's in, in California now, is some of the best uh, show and tells that I've ever seen. It's, we still talk about him to this day. I, I, have to, I have to share a quick story. So this is probably 1993, 1994. So remember, technology is a little bit different. We have a client who's down at the Metropolitan Detention Center in, in uh, LA. I go down and meet with him, and he speaks almost no English. 
and he basically is charged. What would happen is they there was a, a, a gang that was going around and they'd go to truck stops and they had inside information as to which like target trucks had VCRs or things and they were stealing them from truck stops. So this guy's like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't, you know, all that stuff. We get him out um, uh, on bail. I call the AUSA on the case who I happen to know. And I said, you know, what the, what's up with this? And the guy says, you know, he, he didn't do it. It wasn't around. And he says, you have a VCR in your office, right? Shows you how long ago it was. And I said, yeah. And he says, I'm going to do you a favor because I like you. And so we plug it in. He had stumbled into, you know, an FBI setup. They had cameras everywhere. He walks in and in the Queen's English, <laughs> no hint of a Spanish accent says, here's what I'll sell you these VCRs for. You know, <laughs> so it's kind of the same idea. And at that point, you're like, um, dude, we're pleased. Yeah, I got it. So, yeah. You got him. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about the cartels because this interests me a lot. Cartels aren't ne- necessarily known for playing nice with outsiders and having people come into their territory. So I'm wondering if you can provide any insight of kind of how they found a middle ground to work with each other. And if, and again, not necessarily even naming names, but are there, you know, we've got the two major cartels, CDS and CJNG, and then, you know, lots of underneath. Again, the presumption is they don't play well amongst each other, generally speaking. So really curious how MS-13 was able to kind of thread that needle of being involved in Mexico and not running afoul of one or the other, you know, of the, of the major cartels. So the, as you said is perfectly MS-13 does not do well with uh, working, excuse me, the cartels do not allow outsiders. This is their territory. I mean, they're having enough problems come, you know, conflicting with amongst each other. So having MS-13 there, which are essentially, you know, foreigners in their country. So they're immigrants in, in they're not Mexican, but I've found that the cartels really have, you know, their own armies, but there's a, there's a spot for them to have, you know, people do their, you know, it's, they make more money working with them. And then against them. So they found it easier to maybe say have MS-13 do do the dirty work, do the collections or, or uh, you know, they take a, pro- a portion of, you know, the proceeds for everybody coming in on the illegal on the immigrant trains that MS-13 is smuggling them up north. So. You know the you know again it can be found on on the internet. It's not you know uh, so CJNG Los Cetas uh, cart, uh, you know Gulf Cartel. So a lot of them have worked with MS13. Uh, a lot of them have been known to uh, to work with them. There isn't a blatant like oh yes we're in an alliance type of uh, situation, but there is a uh, quid pro quo sort of agreement that they'll allow them to stay in their territory and hey we'll 
will afford you some ability to take some narcotics or or work some junk, and then we won't retaliate against you because hey, we're working together. Um, so it's more of a a big brother, little brother type of situation with the big brother saying, okay, you, you can stick around, but at any time, you know, I can, I can take you down a notch or two. So MS 13 understands that they recognize that. And I think that they respect it. And that for them, it's a lot easier for business, uh, to be stationed there in Mexico than having their middle management here in the United States or back in El Salvador where there is in Mexico, they can facilitate the smuggling of the immigrant train through Mexico and through the different stations and, and make sure that the weapons are going south or going north, the drugs are going south or north. So it's, uh, it, it's really a, it's a close relationship, which is a fairly new one since 2015. And um, it is, you know, it's good for business for both sides. What about in the United States? Um, because I, I think the the generally accepted scenario is, especially with with drugs as the example, um, you know, once a cartel gets the product into the United States, the cartel generally doesn't do the the individual distribution. They'll send it to someplace else. I'm wondering if there's a relationship then with MS13 as far as for lack of a better term, you know, distribution within the United States. I've listened in New Jersey. I never saw that relationship. I can't speak for the other 55 divisions in the United States. Uh, and because my focus on task force Vulcan was Mexico, I really wasn't, my focus wasn't in, you know, what's occurring here in the United States because sure. each one of those divisions is responsible for their territories. And those are excellent agents. So, I'm not going to come into, you know, Texas and start telling them, you know, this is how you should write that those that's your area of responsibility. So I can't speak for the other 55 divisions in New Jersey. Uh, when I left, you know, I was not seeing a blatant um, cooperation. So um, but again, it, it, there's there's a there's a squad in Newark whose responsibility is organized crime drug enforcement task force. It's the OSIDF squad. So their responsible really is for the cartels. Um, their responsibility is the large n narcotics that are coming in through Port Elizabeth into Atlantic City. So for them, they would see more of the, the Mexican cartel trafficking. And I was on the gang squad or up at one of the local resident agencies. And when I worked and investigated MS-13 there in New Jersey, I was not seeing cross-pollination between uh, the cartels, the, the OCDF squad, and myself. Uh, that's not to say that it doesn't, isn't occurring in other, in other divisions in the country, So, but I can't speak for that uh, on those other places. Okay. Well, this has been very, very illuminating. Um, I... I... As you, as you know, I could talk about this for, for forever. Um, but since we both have day jobs, I'm going to, um, I'm going to go ahead and let you go. Um, give a plug again for your, your current company. I want to make sure that people know just, you know, if anybody needs forensic accounting, investigative services. Yeah, absolutely. Thank go. you very much. The Bruner Sierra Group, uh, which can be found at www.brunersierragroup.com is a firm that my wife and I started. So we are a 
just my husband, uh, just a husband wife firm is just the two of us. So we are a very much a white glove concierge forensic accounting with investigation uh, firm. We provide uh, resources to a lot of uh, small to medium companies, family offices, and high net worth value families. But we also working with other companies that are in need of forensic accounting because what's great about my wife is that she's a, a forensic accountant and uh, there's lots of forensic accountants. There's lots of CPAs, but there's very few people who have both tools in their tool bag. And when you know she's got both of those along with 23 years of experience in New York City, she's a, a, a tremendous, tremendous asset for a lot of attorneys, defense attorneys who are looking for somebody who can testify regarding forensic accounting. So uh, feel free to reach us out. We have a newsletter, a weekly newsletter that we put out. Um, so you can find that on the Intel brief section of our website and we're more than happy to talk to you. Anybody, if you want, feel free to reach out for me and, uh, send me a, a phone, um, send me an email or shoot me a call and we're more than happy to set up a consulting call. That's awesome. And, and if you want to put a name to a face or a face to a, a voice, I mean, uh, you know, look on, uh, Look on LinkedIn and, and stay tuned on CNN because you, you'll yeah. see them occasionally. Thanks, Dan. I really, Jack, really appreciate this. Thank you very much. This. Appreciate the time and uh, happy to join you whenever you need again. Appreciate that. All right, everyone. That's been Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for this week, and we will talk to you next week. Have a good week, everyone.